This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. That's because they think I'm what? That's because your students think you're part Republican. Part Republican. Yeah, I think I am part Republican. I'm part Republican. I'm part independent, part uh, Democrat, probably. Students don't like anything other than progressive. You know, what's so funny is that uh, we just are in the middle of a strike. The graduate students, you remember being a graduate student wasn't really like a uh, lucrative career. And, uh, and it's yeah. true still today as when you were studying, you know, category theory way back in the day. Uh, but this, uh, this time, the U- United Auto Workers have formed a union for graduate students at the University of California, and they've been on strike for a month, and they're not getting paid, and they're not teaching classes, and they're not taking classes. But um, you know how uh, recently the New York Times employees went on strike? Did you hear that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Elon Musk, you know, tweeted out woke versus woke, you know, that <laughs> you know, that they're the woke writers of the New York Times are are striking against the woke employer, the New York Times. And it's very similar with, you know, graduate students are striking against professors who used to be graduate students, all of whom are in the same persuasion politically, you know, 99%. It's it's like, you know, Twitter uh, politics. And so we have this uh, you know, kind of a battle, you know, Kramer versus Kramer, woke versus woke, where they the students are claiming that you know the professors are evil capitalist pigs and exploiting labor, and uh, the the graduate students, which is true. I mean, the graduate students living in in La Jolla, California, is not very cheap, uh, nor is it to live in Berkeley or Westwood or Brentwood, California. But first off, living in La Jolla is great. <laughs> If you could afford yeah, to live there, at it all. is great. Like the most beautiful town in the United States. Yeah, it, it might be Santa Barbara, very similar as well. You know, any yeah. any place where the the tagline is that it's a place for the newly wed and the nearly dead. I mean, you know, you're going into a place that's going to bankrupt you if if that's where you're going to live. But of course, the cities grow up around the universities, right? It's a great place to have uh, to have a family, to have culture to have education, obviously, to have, I mean, we built a, a train a track that goes from campus now to, to downtown San Diego. It's on billions of dollars. I was actually featured as a picture on the side of the train recently. But, but the point about the strike is, um, you know, the graduate students in physics are very different from a graduate student in anthropology or something like that. And yet they're all on strike. And the thing that, you know, concerns me is that if if I ask my graduate students, who I think I treat well, if I said, you know, well, why don't you ask your med school friends, you know, how much they get paid to go to graduate school and get professional training, they'll say negative $40,000 a year because they have to pay to go to, to medical school or law school or whatever. That's true, but Brian, I'm gonna, I could argue both sides. I could say, on the one hand, the grad students, they're going to get the benefit of a PhD, and then they could go off and make whatever. But at the same time, you guys get huge multi-million dollar grants, and then grad students really are cheap labor to work on those grants. So oh, it's, it's worse than that. I, I agree. And it's worse than that because we've actually outsourced a lot of the labor to, to China and other parts of the world because uh, we couldn't, you know, quote unquote, couldn't find you know the labor pool that we needed for graduate students in the U.S. But that just made the problem worse because the Asian students that come 
you know, literally from, from, I mean, I have a thousand applicants a year for, you know, three spots or something, you know, from Asia and, uh, and, and they're, you know, perfect test scores and, and great training. Uh, and so it's almost impossible to, to keep up with it, but that was a very deliberate policy of the National Science Foundation in the sixties and seventies and eighties, you know, to kind of reduce the cost of capital and labor for, uh, for research sure. to be conducted. Well, let me ask but you a question. Thing, yeah. By step two, which was your almost Nobel Prize winning project, how much in grants did you get to support that project? Like the dollar amount? I mean, over probably uh, over its lifetime, twenty million plus. Um, okay, most much, of which was federal. How much into equipment mm-hmm. and costs that were you know fixed like that? Um, it was probably about half, maybe fifty fifty. Okay, so you had ten million for labor. And how much yeah. did you pay the grads? You didn't pay the grad students anything to work on that. How much do you have to pay the school? They got three fifty an hour, James. Come on, don't be ridiculous. No, uh, okay. So there's a couple of misconceptions. One is that the professor controls their salaries, which we don't. We get a, a grant oh, no, I, I and it that. specifies. Yeah, but the listeners, the listeners might not understand it, right? Uh, but the other thing is, um, you know, when, when you do when you do this kind of research, uh, it's also professional preparation and. The graduate students do get uh, a, a huge benefit of this of this work, and the the you know furthermore the thing that I don't like about it is that it's you know I my PhD advisor Peter Timby he's not only been on my podcast you know he came to my wedding you know he'll uh, he'll probably come to my second wedding no no I'm just kidding uh, he you know he's been intimately involved I've stated his you know I, I love the guy like like uh, and and to go on strike it's not like Starbucks employees okay so Starbucks employees. Um, I don't know if this would ever happen, James. Imagine if you uh, are working at Starbucks and then there's a kid. I, okay, right there, that would never happen. <laughs> not because not because I'm I'm a elitist and above Starbucks. It's because why they would not hire me. I would be. I can't. Well, I tried to figure out how to use like the basic soda machine and stuff at the comedy club that I own. I couldn't even figure that out. Yep. So forget Starbucks. Well, I think. Well, I'd say they hire you because they want to figure out how to make it, you know, more optimal as a third space for chess players. And they want to understand the permutations of lattes and soy and oat milk. And so they're hiring you for your brains, not, not just for your looks. And when they, uh, when they do that, um, but you are so desperate to get this position that you write to one of the baristas and you say, please write me a letter of recommendation. I am desperate to join, you know, your profession. And immediately, as soon as I get there, I'm going to go on strike because I hate this profession. It's the most. In other words, right now I'm in the midst of hell, professor hell. You know, I always say being a professor is the hardest three hour a week job in the world. But every December, it becomes a six hour a week job because we have to write letters of recommendation. And I don't know if you've ever done a show on like how to write a letter of recommendation. What do you want to do? What do you want to provide? How do you want to tailor it? And I've written. I think I looked at my folder. I think I've written like 600 letters in the last 22 years of being a scientist, you know, postdoc professor. It's a lot, and each one is tailored, you know, to the. And then each individual university that that say one of my uh, undergraduates is applying to. So let's say she's applying to 12 institutions. Each institution, Carnegie Mellon, Case Western. Uh, Stanford. They all have a different portal. They all they all have these different permutations of like rate their intellectual capacity and tell me the cohort that you're. It takes like ten minutes per person per school, plus the writing of the actual letter and making a PDF. And then sometimes they won't accept PDF. They want Word, and then I use Mac. And oh, it's a big anyway. 
you know, world's tiniest violin, okay? But the bigger point is that they are desperate to get this, and I'm happy to provide them these letters of, of recommendation. But you wouldn't have that situation where people are desperately trying to become coal miners, right? Or are or desperately wanting to work in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory in, the, in 1906, right? Where they're just like, it's awful. They're, they're basically slave labor conditions, child labor. In other words, this is a very prestigious thing. We also have a surplus of incredible, I mean, I tur- we turn away six or seven incoming graduate school classes. So my bigger point is that people want to work in this field, and, and yet they're also going on strike, and, um, and they're striking against the very people who share their ideology. It's a very unusual situation to be in because I, we share I, their ideology politically. I ultimately agree with you. I just think all these situations you're describing, like, I don't think grad school is necessary at all, period. And I don't think... Why do you say that? I, okay, now we're fighting. Now, those are fighting words. Okay, let's take that apart. I don't think the New York apart. Times is, is necessary. Like... When was the, I mean, no, I don't get my news from the New York Times and I'm pretty up on all of the news on both the left side and the right side and the middle, all the many things in the middle. I've seen personally the effect of the useless op-ed page in the New York Times. And so it just, and that's the most prestigious newspaper in the world. And, and I, I've seen so many articles where I knew people who were covering the articles who documented for me all of the actual lies and the, the reporters even knew the lies were there. Like the New York Times, any, I'm not saying every established media is useless, but probably it's the case that 90% of established media, particularly the most prestigious ones are useless. Not prestigious. I'm willing to bet they're more um, interested in reporting the news, but the New York Times is so desperate. They're just, they just want clicks. And- Have you been red pilled, James? Have you been red pilled by Elon? What's going on? No, here? but I look. The New York Times has covered me on several occasions, and I, and I, can I know agree. and featured an op-ed by your enemy, yeah, right? An op-ed Gary about a so LinkedIn who, guy who, who just it was like a useless piece of crap. So sorry for the language. Yeah, but uh, no, it's okay. Uh, it's, okay. it's your podcast. I still get. I got today. I got today an email about that op-ed. It's two and a half years later. Could people just lose oh my, my number on this already? Like it's ridiculous. <laughs> so, so, so you don't believe right. that you know all pub, uh, so, okay. So the publishing, you know, the, the media is is sort of doomed in one sense, but uh, on another sense, they're they're essential. You know, I still look at it. You still look at it. You just admitted that you look at the New York Times. No, um, I, but I, on I, occasion, I actually never once look at the New York Times. Like, yes, oh, you when don't. Uh-huh. Writes an op-ed about me. I look at the New York Times, but that's it. <laughs> I had an article written recently about me. And I'm not doing this to sound elitist, but I'm just like I just I don't have the time to like read about myself, and 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 I'm it's not like I'm so you know like I said I'm not, I'm not saying this from you know elitist point of view. There's an old joke like the the professor gets mad because he's only been fu- featured twice this month on the on the school's website. You know it's um uh but but the the point is is like I'm actually here. I want to discuss this with you. I've I've had the best year of my life in a lot of ways. Um, and, and it's partially why I wanted to come on the show, uh, because this whole year you and I didn't speak to each other until right now in December, we haven't spoken, you know, basically this whole year. We haven't done a podcast since last year. I think, I think so. We might've done one when my Galileo book, um, audio book came out, but I I don't, I don't remember, uh, a hundred percent. And that's why it's been the greatest year of my, no, um, (laughs) no. So I missed you, but I want to share some things and I want to discuss, you know, some, some, some other things. Just on how to handle success 
you know, because I, I think, you know, you've been incredibly successful. You've been incredibly influential, not just on me, but on millions of people. Um, and yet, I think I've come to a point, and I, I shared this with Ryan Holiday, you know, the humble dropping of a name. You know, who I have issues with in, in some ways, as you know, from the, the pandemic and his kind of, you know, overarching concern about it to, you know, to like not asking about, you know, how is James feeling? You know, it's just like, did you get your eighth well, shot? Well, or I will say Ryan's a great writer and I love his books on stoicism and he's, he's always Me too. really interesting things and he's a good guy. And I, I call him my stoic rabbi. So I, I won this award. Um, speaking of graduate students, I was uh, the recipient of the 2022 Horace Mann Medal from Brown University, where I got my PhD. And I huh. gave a speech and commencement alongside Nancy Pelosi, outgoing Speaker of the House. And uh, she was speaking to the undergrads. I spoke to the graduate students. And it was very, you know, it was very moving. My kids came, my wife came, uh, all expenses paid trip. I got this huge medal, like Flavor Flav. And, um, and it, it was lovely. It was an, an incredible thing. But I wrote to Ryan, like when I won it, um, I wrote to him and I said, I just wanted to let you know you've had a big effect on me because I won it. And I was like, let's say I didn't win it. Would I be depressed? Like, would I be bummed out to know I hadn't won the Horace Mann Medal from Brown University, one of the most prestigious universities in the world? And I said, no, like, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't hurt me. Like, I lost a Nobel Prize. You know, like, like there's only, you know, very few places you can go down. And actually, in my speech, I said, now, thank, you know, I have to express my hostility because now I can no longer write the book Losing the Horace Mann Medal. Uh, but <laughs> be, besides, besides all that, I felt indifferent, James. It was like, it was a very strange thing because as a professor, you're always trying to get, accumulate accolades and, and get, you know, raises and teaching promotions and this and that and sabbaticals. I mean, it's funny because graduate students want to become postdocs, postdocs want to become professors, and then professors want to not teach and get sabbaticals and go back to basically doing research like a graduate student. So it's kind of it's kind of weird that we're in this weird habit trail of well, uh, well, of this, life as an academic. This is all an important thing. Like you say, if you hadn't gotten it, first off, when you did get it and when you were told that you got it, what was your reaction? It was. I, I, I want to say, I don't want to say embarrassment, but I felt like, you know, all these prizes and awards, I actually felt proud of myself for being indifferent because I always had this question, James, you know, if I did win the Nobel Prize, would my life have been different? You know, if if we hadn't made the mistakes that we made and the, and the errors and, and so forth, not blunders, not stupid, you know, I mean, bicep is still going on, as I just said. You know, I never knew, like, what would happen? Like, would I turn it down? Uh, would I, you know, use it as a platform to rail against it? Or did I still kind of worship it the way I did as a 20-year-old, 30-year-old scientist? And um, it, it, it's not the same thing. Obviously, winning a, an award from a you know Ivy League institution is great, but it's not the same as the Nobel Prize. No, it, it is really. Getting acknowledged for anything that you've done by a group of your peers is a very exciting thing. And look, and look, and look I want to address this directly. Like, you said you felt indifferent, but often when bad things happen to us, like let's say you hadn't gotten tenure, let's say you know, for instance, you didn't get the Nobel Prize, you wrote an entire book about your frustration of not getting the Nobel Prize. It's very important that you're in a field, physics, it's very important that a lot of things are going to happen that disappoint you and you're going to also have a lot of successes, particularly if you're ambitious and you love physics and you want to succeed, good things will happen, but also bad things will happen. Like you won't win certain prizes and everything. It's very important that you are more happy on the good things then you are sad on the bad things. You have, let's say, a certain mm. amount of well-being in the bank, and you withdraw yes. well-being when you're upset about the bad things. 
but you need to replenish and celebrate the good things or the result is burnout. Like the result is you, you run out of emotional fulfillment in what you love doing. And, and, and when that happens, you're burnt out. Like literally you, you, you've, you've taken too much out of too much oxygen out of your passion and there's nothing left. So it's burnt. And mm. I think this is very important that you should be happy getting this Horace Mann award. You should celebrate. You should go out with the wife. You should tell all your friends. You should write a blog post. You should give a great talk. And, 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 I, and I, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I actually turned it back, you know, cause if I've learned nothing, it's to, you know, from you, it's to, you know, shamelessly self-promote myself at every opportunity. So I did, my talk was called Think Like Galileo. I gave the commencement speech for the graduate school. And, you know, of course I had the product tie-in to my, to my, uh, to my book, audio book. But in reality, I did kind of use it to, to present these correlations with these things like accolades. Like when Ga there was no Nobel Prize with Galileo, right? Um, that didn't exist until 1901. But Galileo instead did win this prize at the time. It was called uh, the Academy of the Lynx. The Lynx is like a little giant, you know, kitty cat um, that's a uh, wild cat in Italy, I guess. Has big eyes and a big ear, so it has a lot of like sense organs. So scientists would associate like someone who's very smart, like a wise old owl. To them, it was the lynx, mm. and so they had this academy of the lynx called the Linsean Society. It still exists, and uh, Galileo won it, and he said many, many amazing things when he won it. But uh, but ever since then, ever like he won it in nineteen, uh, sorry, in uh, sixteen thirteen or something after his first major book, the Sidereus Nuncius, the Starry Messenger. And he, which revealed that Jupiter was like a mini solar system with moons going around it, not the Earth, and that upheld the Copernican worldview. Now, once he received this accolade, he then, on every single one of his books thereafter, and he wrote like 10 more books, he wrote, member of the Academy of the Lynx, underneath, you know, his, <laughs> underneath his name. And so it, that accolade meant a tremendous amount to him. Of course it meant a tremendous amount to him. And it, you make a point where... He used it not only for, not only was he proud of it and probably celebrated it, but he used it to acquire future career success because, you know, it's a, 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 an, authority, an authority figure or an authority body said, you're a great scientist. And people, it's just natural human instinct. People want authority to, to get affirmation that they're associating with the right people and the right ideas and, and, and so on. So it's, again, extremely important to celebrate these things and not downplay them and to mention them. Not, of course, to the point where, like you were saying, you know, it gets too self-promotional, but you should just be proud of what of what you do. And, and these things are important in society and society recognizes them. I guess, you know, the next level, you know, in Judaism that we share and we've talked about many times, you know, there's le different levels of charity. You know, Jews have as many words for different, you know, kind of societal things as Eskimos allegedly have for snow, right? So like Jews have like 20 different names for love and and like 10 different names for charity and, and kindness and everything. But one of the concepts within the concept of philanthropy is the notion of the different levels of giving charity. So the first level is give nothing, right? Uh, the second level is you give the minimum, you know, which is 10%. Uh, the the and this is all in the Talmud, which is the second holiest book in Judaism. The uh, but there's a limit. There's a maximum. You're not allowed to give more than twenty percent. Uh, have you ever heard that, James? You have to give ten no, percent, which is like a tithe, a tenth, you know. But there's a maximum of twenty percent. And why do you think there would be a maximum? Because perhaps it's it's ego 
so so your ego doesn't get too big like uh oh i'm the benefactor of this if you love this right because who's the ultimate benefactor according to the talmudic rabbis who's the ultimate benefactor in space god God, right. So like, oh, you're better than God. Like without James Altucher's, you know, uh, $10,000 check, you know, which is 20% of his net worth, you know, whatever. Oh, this guy, like the whole world would be poor, you know, give me a break. So it's to keep your ego in check. I think that's very interesting because like you might say, well, give all your money away and, you know, just be poor. And that's the highest. No, but then, and then even then you shouldn't just like the highest thing is not just giving a guy a check, you know, as Jesus, a great Jew said, you know, teach a man to fish and he'll have fish for his whole life. Give a man a fish, he'll uh, eat for one day. Um, so the highest level is actually to give anonymously, like so that right. nobody knows, you know, to put your name in a building. And then the the ultimate highest level is to give anonymously give somebody a job, which is kind of weird um, when you think about it. Like, how can you anonymously give someone a job? Because then they're self-sufficient, then they don't need you. And then uh, and then your ego's not bound up with it because it's anonymous. So you'll never be. Um, so I kind of feel like, you know, in some ways that, um, when I when I when I think about these you know kind of levels of of different accolades, uh, that maybe it should be that indifference is I, I hear what you're saying because you know like I actually like that people put their name on a hospital like here in San Diego there's a hospital named after Irwin Jacobs the founder of Qualcomm and uh, and his wife and they've given billions of dollars away and, and they always put their name on it and it inspired me to give a substantial amount of money to the food bank which which has their name on it but. I think it's good because then it motivates, but it should be done like, and, and you see it like Jeff Bezos just gave like a hundred million dollars to, you know, I don't know, ACLU or some, you know, left-wing charity or whatever, or his wife did to Planned Parenthood and ex-wife Mackenzie. That's fine. You can do whatever you want. But I mean, the highest thing is to do it without anybody knowing it. Usually I agree with kind of these, like, it's always very interesting how the, the, the secondary philosophies of all of these things that are in the Jewish religion that you don't normally think about, like, like, you know, this idea of, of giving anonymously, for instance, is the highest form of charity. But I don't agree with this because like you said, mm -hmm. I think putting your name on it does inspire people to to follow. Like it's the whole, it's, there's science about this. Like if you know others are doing something, you're more likely to do it. So, you know- if, That's if, true. If that is true, yeah. currently and, and in the well, hotel are recycling their right. towels, then you're more likely to recycle your towel. By the way, you should never do that. You should never do that. They're doing it to save money, okay? And they're leveraging your social welfare aspects. But you know, the more people that do that, the less work there is for the housekeepers. And eventually they're gonna, they have reduction in the amount of housekeeping staff. And you know, people don't realize that it's actually, you know, just set up so the hotel can save money on housekeeping staff right. uh, and so, not give so, as many tips. Right. Cause you're actually less likely to give a tip to your house. Do you give a tip to when you stay at a hotel? I know you never leave your house, but it, it, theoretically, do you give a tip and how much do you give? Uh, I always give a tip. Yeah. And I always give, I always give a little bit more than would be considered normal because okay. I That's want great. them to remember me. Yes. So, and, and, and you know, there's a practical benefit. If you leave something behind, which I was just in Chile for like four nights, imagine going to Chile, a 5,000 mile trip for four nights. Uh, I was just there at a nice, a nice hotel down there. And, uh, you know, it's like they pay their staff, you know, $5 a day or whatever. Uh, but I knew I was going to forget something. And I always tip, like, even when I'm there. Like, I used to do it. By the way, never tip the whole time that you stay. Never tip the last day. Did you know that? You shouldn't, like, some people, I used to do that. Like, oh, when I leave, I'm going to leave, you know, $50, you know, $30, whatever it is. 
$10 a day, but only but never do that because they have different staff on different days. So you might not you might miss the man or woman who's cleaning but the my, day. My, that you, my issue is I, I don't when I stay in a hotel, I don't get housekeeping at all until the end. So you don't, you just keep do not disturb on there. That's yeah, that's yeah. that's smart. I guess that's smart. I just I like I just it, like you know, private. they put a chocolate on your pillow and but they tuck in your sheets so tight. I can't stand that they tuck in my sheets. But to the point, really, though, of the of the uh, anonymity and charity, I used to believe that. Now I don't because I do see the effects mm-hmm. of when you do something and people are inspired by what you did. There's likely to be more charity uh, later on, and that's and I, and that's what I'm talking into with like accolades. So like you know to not accept. By the way, the Nobel Prize in Physics, I believe, is the only prize in chemistry. Those are the only prizes that no one's ever rejected. In other words, people have turned down the literature prize. People turned down. The Peace Prize, people have turned down uh, the, the whatever other prize, uh, but they never turned down the physics or chemistry prize. And that is, as I say in my first book, Losing the Nobel Prize, you know, a function of the idolatry that we have towards these prizes. And I and I guess I felt like, what am I, who am I trying to impress? Like either with charity, charity, okay, that makes sense. Maybe with science, like someone will look up to me if I won a Nobel Prize, but they wouldn't. But like, there's so many other metrics. And I guess this year, you know, I've kind of I've won, I won another award at the San Diego Air and Space Museum. I was inducted into was the, the international. It's called the International Aviation Hall of Fame Award, and it's given out to like it's been given out to you know Amelia Earhart and to uh, and to Charles Lindbergh and to uh, Neil Armstrong and and Brian Keating now. Um, and and I was one of several winners. That, and I really felt insecure. I, I mean, Basically, I really a group of Nazis it was given out to. <laughs> no, th- there were some communists. There were a couple commies in there too. All right. Don't don't. All right. So now, when I won that, I really felt like the imposter syndrome. Ironically, after you and I wrote, co-wrote, or you wrote the forward, co-wrote the forward with Barry Barish, winner of the 2017 Nobel Prize, to the wonderful book uh, "Think Like a Nobel Prize Winner," James Altucher forward. Which um, I did feel that the impo- book is imposter all- syndrome writing that that forward. <laughs> so I was like, thank you for giving me this gift of. Now, I, in my acceptance speech, by the way, they didn't. if you're giving an award, at least tell the person you're going to have to give an acceptance speech. I didn't know I'd have to give an acceptance So until I saw the other guy ahead of me who had like started the school called Top Gun that the movies are based on, Dan Peterson, who wrote a book about that called Top Gun. Um, so he won it like a minute before me. Then he gets up there, gives this like tear-jerking speech, and I'm like, what the hell? I didn't even know how to give a speech. Um, so I get up there and I said, I, for the first time in my life, I'm wondering if I'm even good enough to have the imposter syndrome. Uh, I've been in this crowd of 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 like the guy who runs all army helicopters around the world, this major general, and then like an astrophysics professor. But my wife Sarah helped me out a lot. She said, "Look, Brian, you've taught a tremendous number of people. You've done you've flown like kids with cancer and burn victims around the world in a tiny little Cessna. You know, <laughs> you've done a lot for aviation, but mostly for space and learning about space and teaching space." At the level and the scale that I teach, I shouldn't be embarrassed. And and so with her help, she helped me see that. But again, and and again, the, these things now I'm I'm enjoying because my kids are finally old enough to come to these events, and you know, and I don't have to go alone. And and that used to be kind of a drag, uh, even though it was nice to give a speech or or get an award. But but now I just I do feel like, you know, like my mortality. You know, I'm 51, and I'm thinking about life. You know, in just a different frame of mind where. Where it's not uh, here. Here's another example. My, my my rabbi, you know, who I loved and was married me and and did the eulogy for my father at his funeral 16 years ago. He moved to Israel, and uh, we have a new rabbi in the temple that I go to, in 
I felt like a little bit uh, that I had been abandoned by this. You know, he's like a father figure to me after my father died. And and now he's in Israel and he always wanted to do that. And, and then there's a new rabbi who's wonderful. And he and his wife, you know, are now the rabbi and, and Rebetzin, it's called the woman, uh, the wife of the rabbi, of my for my children. And I was like, you know, how selfish am I? Because you know, I was like, mourning the fact that I don't have this rabbi in my life on a daily basis anymore. But but how great I should feel for my kid. Like, I'm getting to the point where I'm trying to get more comfort, more satisfaction from helping other people rather than, like, trying to climb some ladder of success. But I'm worried, James, because there is sort of that Elan Vital, as they call it, you know, that life energy, that vitality that you have when you're questing after something, bestseller, you know, the um, you know to to win an uh, Oscar, a Nobel Prize. Like, if I don't have that anymore, I think I'm healthier. I think it's better, you know, for society where the person doesn't care so much about him or herself, but more about their family, their community, their society. Um, but I think on a personal level, perhaps that's going to diminish my vitality or my uh, right. you know kind of my uh, emotional attachment to my own victories. But what do you think? Yeah, I think this is a really fundamental question that is a life question. Like, at what point in life do you let um, kind of elder statesmanship take over after youthful ambition and passion? And, mm -hmm. you know, when you're young, and it depends on the profession, but like in physics, math, science, and many other professions, the peak age for most professions, actually, and for sports, the peak age is in the 20s or 30s. Uh, for physics, certainly, uh, it's probably the peak age where people do their their peak research is in their 20s and 30s. Doesn't mean mm -hmm. that's true for you. It's just an average. And mm -hmm. you know, you can argue Einstein was in his 20s when he wrote his his most useful papers. Um, not his most cited paper, by the way, which is the one where he says God doesn't roll dice. That was much later in his life, which that's is right. actually cited paper, but his theory of relativity was when he was in his twenties. But at some point it needs to shift over your, 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 the metric by which you're defining your success, I feel needs to shift over to how much am I influencing and helping the next generation, the people who will, who will inherit my passion for a subject and go even further with it. Mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's so many conflicts that have happened through history between mentors and mentees when the mentee starts to rise above the mentor but the, the goal of the mentor is to make the mentee the student better than the teacher right which is which is again by the way coming back to where we started with graduate students that's my goal my goal is that my graduate students should exceed me and in every way you know like I, but financially is like the least important part i know it's important for them and and it was important for me but nobody goes into you know being a grad student to make money so what are you doing it for you're doing it to, so you can exceed your the person you're apprenticing with you know again graduate school is like an apprenticeship in a lot of ways but i, I do agree with you but does that diminish your own ability to then continue succeeding well 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 your success will be different you it does diminish the ability to come up with the next theory of relativity, to come up with the next concept that's going to win the Nobel Prize, that that does diminish, and your ambitions kind of will naturally change. And for those who don't, like they they become less happy because when you're in your fifties and sixties and seventies and eighties, your ability to 
you know, come up with new concrete research that changes the world does get less. So you have to, and then your ability to write it up and then your ability to fight for credit and your ability to publicize it, all of these things get less, but it doesn't, it's not necessarily true that your need for these things gets less that you have to sort of train yourself to say, look, now I've done this. Now, how can I do this to go to this next stage in my life? And whether I'm not saying 50 is the dividing line, but lots of things in the brain start to change around the age of 50. For instance, your ability to do complex mathematical reasoning in your brain diminishes, mm -hmm. uh, but many other things change. But what does increase is your ability to recognize patterns. You know, when you see a student who's going through something you've seen other students go through or you've been through, your ability to help them actually increases. So this is why, what's the average peak age for a historian is 79 years old. So historians, yeah. it's mm -hmm. very different from mathematicians. A good historian depends on learning from the past and then using that mm -hmm. to interpret, you know, whatever it is they're analyzing and make then predictions or assumptions about the future. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realized, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, Good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the, the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, If you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important. And I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that 
I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. What's the peak age for a mentor? You, you know, you see many of these people in Silicon Valley, they've been CEOs for a while, and then they become on boards and, and are investors and are mentors to the next generation of CEOs. And you don't see them becoming a CEO again you, and, and striving to become a CEO and making the next billion. You see them taking more of this mentorship role. And I think that's probably what you're feeling a little bit. Like I know I, in the past few years, have felt this extremely. Like, let's say from from the age of 25 to 45, I was in, or 50 even, I was insanely obsessed with, you know, writing every single day, getting more followers, writing things that were meaningful to people. I wanted to be the best writer in the world. I wanted to be the best entrepreneur. I wanted to ever give great talks, everybody to know who I am, uh, have a podcast with tens of millions of, of downloads a day. And in the past few years, I think for a lot of reasons, that's become less for me. And yeah. I don't always know why, but I think I think it's because I'm I'm much more happy now teaching and helping people. And mm -hmm. that really has become a strong part of, of my life. Like right now, Jay and I are preparing a course, uh, which I'm gonna put on Udemy about writing. And I've never wanted to do something like this before, but now I just love this idea of because I've helped so many people with their own writing, that mm -hmm. the idea of making a course about it, there's nothing else I'm more interested in than, than that because I can see that will have a, an impact on people. I don't need to be famous from it. I have no desire to write you know, the next best-selling book about writing. I just simply want to teach about it. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and I think you know, it's part of becoming like a different, uh, a different mindset, which requires that you accept the changes in your own capabilities, <clears throat> um, which, which has to do with, you know, like when you're young and you are a grad student, you are a postdoc, you are a professor, and you're coming up, you have a flexible mind, you're, you're reading all the papers, you're doing all the tests and stuff like that. And then later in life, you can start to become more consumed with, with teaching. And, and you see much of the good teachers, as you said, historians are teachers in a way, right? So for them, you know, to, to mature and to accept that they're aging and my brain isn't as facile as it was as a, as a, you know, 26 year old or whatever. And, uh, and so forth is, you know, when I was in my Einstein prime, but now I'm a better teacher. I have more tools in my toolkit of wisdom, but still that's separate. You know, that's kind of the, as Arthur Brooks talks about, like the second brain or whatever. I forget what he calls it specifically, but, but you know, you mature from this fluid brain to this more kind of uh, toolkit. You know, like yeah. oh, I remember that exact problem or that chess problem. You know, so Arthur from, Brooks call that, calls that you're moving from fluid intelligence to crystallized intelligence. That's right. That's exactly and, right. See, I forgot that. Mean, I forgot what he called it. That's what my fluid well, intelligence. Well, is well, gone. that's what he mentions also, and this is also known in neuroscience is that your your memory declines. It doesn't mean you're getting dementia. It's just memory just naturally declines. You don't need it as much. Exactly. I, I agree. Uh, and so, you know, I think in that sense, I've, I've kind of taken a lot more 
you know, maybe comfort from or or, or you know, put a lot more of my own self-worth in, in teaching. Uh, but because, you know, the students are on strike <laughs> uh, and uh, and we can't, you know, get together in person without, you know, violating scab laws or whatever they call it. Um, so uh, so it kind of got away from that. But on the other hand, I've started this podcast, the, you know, Into the Impossible podcast. Thanks in large part to you. you. Done, yeah, think about what you've done the past few years. You've started a podcast that's been very successful and influential. You You've written these great books, like this latest one on Galileo, was a, a a passion of yours. Like you you yeah. discovered so much about this saint of physics that you you learned so much more by reading his works in the original that it became such a pleasure for you to to write this book and you even give talks about it. Like these are all now ways you're taking this passion for physics and transforming them into what Brian the Elder is doing as opposed to Brian the Younger. Brian right. the Younger was trying to figure out how the universe began. Brian the Older is now just taking pleasure in all these nuances of demonstrating new fascinating things about physics and explaining them. You've explained to me 10 yeah. different theories of how the universe began. Like you could have been working on research instead of that. Instead, you shared all this knowledge with, with my listeners. Right. I, I feel like, you know, I get to teach at scale with my YouTube channel and my podcast and and my books. And, you know, whereas a scientific paper, my most highly cited paper has maybe 1,500 citations. And that's the Bicep 2, you know, result paper, which which is great. Um, but there's people with 10 times higher, you know, citations on, on certain papers. Uh, but, but, and that's kind of the, um, the gamification of academia is like how many citations. And not only that, how many papers have a certain number of citations, it's called your H index, which is kind of a metric. Like you could have one paper, let's say you write two papers and one has zero citations, one has a thousand citations. So your average citation is 500. But it's really you just had one paper, or you had a hundred papers. One has a thousand citations, and uh, and the rest have uh, have zero. So there's something called the H index, which is the number of papers that have at least H citations. So if you've written ten papers and they all have ten citations, your H index would be ten. But if you've only written nine papers and they each have uh, ten citations, then you'd be nine. Okay, so you keep so the higher it gets exponentially higher to increase that number to go from like forty eight, which is my H index now. Uh, to 49 means I have to have another, you know, I have to have 49 total papers that have 49 total citations rather than just one that has 1,500, like I said. So it's kind of a quantity times quality metric. And none of these things are perfect. And then you could do all sorts of gamification, you know, modifications where you can, you know, do it by age and cohort and field because some fields have just way more citations. And then like physics has theory and experiment and computation, you know, break down all those different levels. So, um, and in my, and, and fun fact, that H index is named after my colleague here at UC San Diego named Jorge Hirsch. H stands for Hirsch. And that's his most cited paper, is his paper about this way to quantify citations of papers. <laughs> but, you know, so I started to think, like, my YouTube channel, like, some of my videos will have 100,000 views, and that's, you know, literally 60 times higher than my highest cited paper. Um, so, like, where should I over-index? Where should I put more of my, you know, and, and of course, a lot of them are not physicists that are watching it, and that's great. I try to, you know, as you know, I, I feel scientists have a moral obligation if we're spending taxpayer money, as we all are, to explain to the taxpaying public what we do. I mean, can you imagine if you were working, like, for um, uh, HBO again, and your your boss comes in and says, you know, what are you working on, James? And you say, I'm doing something very, very, very specialized. And something that you're not capable of understanding. 
And even though you pay me, I'm not going to break down in terms that you can understand. You know, you'd be fired, you know, uh, in, a, in a heartbeat. But we as scientists do that. First of all, we don't do any like kind of training in media. We don't do any kind of um, way to distill uh, and spread our, in our ideas. We keep it literally locked in this ivory tower, which I think is immoral because, again, the, your audience and my audience, they were paying my salary. And so, you know, how can I not give back for free, you know, putting on YouTube, putting on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, et cetera? How can I not exchange, you know, for them some tangible reward that if they're interested, some people might not be interested, but if they are, I think it's you know borderline unconscionable that we do that as as scientists. So I've been on a personal mission to do that. There are other people you've you've had on like Andrew Huberman, who's kind of similar. Although that guy won't return my phone calls, James. That that guy, he was a professor here in San Diego about eight to ten years ago. And one of the other you know kind of year twenty twenty two highlights is that um, is related to him in a way, in that his close friend and colleague here at UC San Diego is named Gentry Patrick. And I've had him on my podcast. Um, Gentry happens to be African-American. And I've known him for longer than I've known my wife. And this summer, um, he and my wife's cousin got married. <laughs> and wow. uh, and they asked me to perform the ceremony. And it was done on June 15th, which is known as Loving Day, because that was the day Loving versus Virginia, which ratified interracial marriage, was uh, was passed by the Supreme Court legalizing interracial marriage in the U.S. in 1967. So I was very honored and touched that they asked me to perform. I'd never performed a ceremony, and I had to become a minister. So this year I became, you know, a Jewish minister. Um, uh, and it was a very, you know, it was very arduous, uh, James, to do this because you you actually need, you need to have an email address. And, and if you don't have an email address, you cannot become a minister in the Universal Life Church. Um, so it was arduous, but I became a minister. I have my certificate, and uh, and I performed this wedding, and it was a huge highlight for me because you know I, I put a lot of thought into it. I figured, you know, I usually don't do things that I'm only going to do once. Like I never like rewire the electricity in my house. Like you know, it's just it's it's, it's stupid. You should just get a professional to do it, uh, uh, like you. You know, that's that's uh, that that would be my goal. Uh, but you know, so like. I usually, but this is so special. I couldn't not do it, so I, I put a lot of effort into it, um, and uh, it was it was a very challenging thing because actually, a sad thing. the The worst thing that happened to me this year is one of my very close friends passed away, very young. Um, uh, his name is Eden Raffaelli, and he passed Sorry, away yeah. um, just literally. He worked at Google X up in the Bay Area, and he just literally collapsed one day at work and uh, was taken to the hospital, and he he died a few days later. And he was basically taken off of life support as I'm performing this wedding, and I'm talking with his parents. It was it was a very challenging day, um, but I, you know, and I keep a journal because Ryan Holiday told me I should keep a journal, and I should. I never got back to the the connection with Ryan. So when I won this Horace Mann Medal, I told Ryan. I, I told him I, I didn't feel like I was really changed. You know, like I said, it, it was it was important, but it wasn't like transfer. It wasn't like. If I hadn't won it, I would have been crushed, like the way I was about the Nobel Prize, say, at one point. And he was like, that's good. You know, you're, you're like getting there, young Padawan or whatever. Um, and, you know, so it was nice. He's, he's kind of my stoic rabbi. But at the same time, I feel like I wouldn't, I would have been, you know, kind of not I, knowing, let's say they said uh, at the last minute, you can't perform the wedding or whatever, you know, who knows. Uh, then, you know, it would have hurt. It would have, you know, because it's it's almost like those things mean more than than winning 
an academic award or even a Nobel Prize, right? To do those kinds of things, the spiritual things, the that nourish the side of your of your life that only I mean, you can do. Like a lot of people have won the Nobel Prize, but only one person has ever performed this particular wedding. I mean, and, and Ryan has a lot, of, a lot of great examples from Stoicism, but let's look at, I'll look at one example from Buddhism and one example from Judaism. And so in Buddhism, Buddha, of course, started as a prince, right? The most, yeah. he wanted to win wars. He wanted to be a king, all this kind of stuff. Then he was ambitious for what he thought was different definitions of enlightenment. He would try every possible way, like whether to be an ascetic or, you know, engage in meditation or whatever it was. He would try all these different ways to get some magical state he called enlightenment. And then finally, whatever state he realized, he really became like an elder and and taught a bunch of students, monks. And and not only that was almost a diplomat. Like he he his his grove that was in the middle of three warring kingdoms that were always mm. at war with each other one of those kingdoms was the one he would have been king of. So it was mm. particularly difficult for him to be a diplomat and to keep all of his monks who were peace-loving to keep them safe. Mm. There's a lot about Buddha that people don't realize he was constantly negotiating to just save the lives of his monks. And, wow. and he played extreme elder statesman role. Now, take in Judaism, Moses at first was the rising young rabble-rouser. He, he wanted to bring his people, you know, freedom and out of slavery. He's like splitting the Red Sea. He mm. couldn't split the Red Sea in his 70s. He <laughs> could only do it in his 20s. Otherwise, forget it. And then after that, his whole goal, he didn't even need to get to Israel. His whole goal was to just get his people to exceed his own ambition. His ambition initially was to get to Israel. He never himself got to Israel. but to he the promised his- land. So, right. you know, it, it, this is a almost you know, it's, it's throughout history. You see the, the examples of the people we remember and, and, and are, you know, not worship, but you know, <laughs> we think the most highly of are these people who make this transformation from ambition to, to statesmanship. Yeah. And the, 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 you know, and I, I appreciate being compared already to Jesus, to Buddha, to, um, I, I didn't you know, compare to Jesus. Jesus never made the, his fifties. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. We've uh, exceeded the Jesus. I, if we wanted life to go into Stoicism, I would have compared to Seneca and and Marcus Aurelius. Yes. Okay. Good. That'll be when uh, we write our next, uh, you know, next book together. But um, ah, no, I, I I feel like that is a truism. But to 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 get to that point, and also I see this with with fatherhood as well. And and, and I see your, you know, you and in your daughter, you know going back and forth on Twitter and that's cute. And, um, you know, I'm looking forward to the day if I ever allow my kids to be on social media, uh, that they'll be able to do such things. Can I just add, it's such a pleasure for me. My daughter's tweets are a bit spicy. Like, yeah. And, and the we, apple I, didn't I fall far from the tree. Her, I laugh when I read her tweets and I, I don't respond to them often because I don't want to like, you know, get in the way of her own thing. Right. Um, but when I do, it's funny. And then one of her friends yesterday tweeted, I can't believe you let your father follow your tweets, given what you tweet. 
And she tweeted back, he's chill. And that was my highest moment You're of the shepping, weekend. That's, uh, in Yiddish, that's called shepping nachis. Shepping nachis, when you just are like, filled with a kind of paternal, maternal pride over something that your kids did. Not to be confused with schlepping nachos, which my kids will <laughs> never do for me. I love nachos. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, thinking, again, it's like taking pride in your kids' accomplishments you know, is, is at a certain level more satisfying than, than your own. And so it's like, um, I feel like at some point we always have this inner voice, right? That's, uh, but you're, and you're, maybe you're trying to live to impress your inner voice or live to impress yourself. I've heard it said, but, um, but there's really nobody like, I mean, yes, God, you believe in God. You can, you can think about, you know, living in accordance with his rules or, or what have you. But in terms of like, am I, am I an impressive person? You know, am I doing something impressive? Um, I think, yeah, the highest form of that, which relates to my ultimate theory of the meaning of life, you know, I mean, Elon wants to go to Mars and he wants to do this and he wants to live forever and he wants to, uh, and that's great. You know, I'm, I'm a supporter of what he's doing and, and, and a lot of his endeavors, um, but we already can live forever. We just can't bring our physical bodies with us. And that is through the values and the, and the lessons that we teach to our children where the children could be biological, but they don't have to be. They could be ideological. And I think looking at that in kind of an ethical perspective that you can extend, maybe not forever, who knows? I mean, there, there's some saying I heard recently, it's depressing. It's like, a man dies twice, you know, once when he breathes his last breath and once when his name is spoken for the last time. <laughs> And you know we're talking about Moses and Buddha and Jesus and everything now. They're still being talked about. Be as, I think that could be viewed as a positive quote, though. Like, uh-huh. uh, in the sense that I hope for the day. Like, I sometimes I talk to eighty-year-olds who are very successful, and I say, "When does the the ambition and constant drive, which also mm. means constant disappointment, when does it end for you?" And sometimes yes. they say it never has, and that depresses me because. Yeah. I want to know that I can transform to not being as ambitious. Like, oh, so-and-so went on this podcast, but I didn't. You know, so right. I, I get- Andrew Huberman. And, Paging yeah. Andrew Huberman. No, but you had and, this with Stephen Pressfield. You had Stephen Pressfield on earlier this year, or maybe it was a repeat. And he was just like, yeah, I didn't. And I think this is true. Please correct me if I'm wrong, James. But he was like, yeah, every every book you write is a kid you didn't have or vice versa or something like that. Um, or every kid you have is a book you didn't write. That's what he said. And I, I found that so depressing because he doesn't have any kids, right? No, no, no. And we, we I, in fact, I, that was the podcast we did in um, 2021 where, because uh, the very first podcast I had with him in 2016, he said to me, I, it was in his house in Malibu actually, and he said to me that he's given up a lot in his life to be a writer. And I always, but I was leaving. I was walking out the door. The podcast was over. And mm-hmm. when he said that, and I always always wonder what did he mean by that. So I started off this one in 2021, asking him what That's did he right. mean, and he actually said, "You know, I surprised myself by saying that to you." And I had to think what it meant that I said it to you. Like I've thought about it a lot since then. And look, he really gave up a lot to to be a writer. And and I feel like is that worth it? You know, is that worth it? Yes. I mean, let's say that's all you have is that you're remembered for a long time for the books. I mean, Jesus didn't have any kids either, right? And he's still remembered and he still had an influence. So I'm not, I'm not equating those things together. And by the way, you know, people always say, well, why, why is, because I'm always talking about children, but I don't mean to say that if you don't have children, you're like a loser or, or you're a failure or you're immoral in any way. 
Um, but I will say that there are options. You know, you could be a big brother, big sister. You could be an adoptive parent. You could be a foster parent. I mean, there's so many children. We talk about abortion and and what should we be able to do and not be able to do. You know, there's so many kids. And I was adopted, you know, and and so I, I know this. Why did you know that, Brian? Yeah, my my stepfather adopted me, and so my 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 name is not uh, Keating when I was a, a child. I was adopted, you know, by my stepfather and my mother, but we changed my name, and so he did adopt me as his own kid, and I wasn't in touch with my father, my biological father, for the next fifteen years of my life. Uh, but I, yeah, I guess what what I'm saying is when I have um, well, how when come, I th- how come uh, you weren't in touch with your biological father for the next fifteen years? So he, you know, kind of after the divorce with my parent with my mom, he viewed us, my older brother and I, of the same mother and father, as kind of you know being completely under the sway of my mother and and her uh, uh, her um, fiance who became my father uh, adopted father, and uh, you know he he decided he didn't you know, have a place in our life and that we'd be better off without him and that he'd be better off without us. And so he gave us up for adoption instead of uh, paying my mother and stepfather, you know, alimony and, and whatnot. He gave us up for adoption. And so I wasn't, uh, so he he didn't have the right to keep our names as as his name. And How did so, you regain contact with him? So uh, in graduate school, when I was at Brown, I had a neighbor in the dorms who had the exact same lifestyle, life history as me. His father had abandoned him. Um, he was raised by his mother and his stepfather. And he went to, um, you know, he was a, a brilliant kid. Uh, he, he came from Turkey. His fa- I think his mother was Turkish and his father was an American GI. And they, they met and after the Korean War or something. Anyway, they, um, so he told me that he had had this reconciliation with his, with his father, his biological father, and it transformed his life, and it transformed um, for the better. Even though he had the same kind of hostility towards his father and how he treated his mother, et cetera. And he told me, you know, like baggage has a handle for a reason, so you can put it down. And by carrying this Absolutely. antipathy towards my father, I realized it was really eating me up inside. And and worse than that, in some ways, was my you know his mother also and his sister had disconnected from me and never had contact with me and my older brother. You know, from the time I was seven, my brother was ten, and so I never saw my biological grandmother again because she ended up dying. And so, at the exact moment I met this friend of mine at Brown, I somehow got in touch with not uh, so my grandmothers, both my biological grandmothers, lived in the you know, what I call the 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 um, you know, the Jewish mother triangle in Southern Florida. You know, uh, so it goes from like you know New York to Florida to you know to Boca to Miami to Boca, and then it goes back up. Uh, and they communicated not to each other because they hated each other, but through mutual friends that I call the internet, all these you know, Jewish bubbies and nanas and whatever. And so word got around that I was interested in talking to my my father, and it also got around that my father's mother was dying of cancer, and she ended up dying before I ever saw her again. I never talked to her again. Um, and so, But before she died, she put my biological father in touch with me, and he and I connected when I was a grad student, and I researched all of his all of his work and math and physics, and we had this connection immediately. And we resumed a relationship after many many fifteen years of not seeing each other, not talking to each other, no contact whatsoever. And and but, still getting along now. Well, he passed away in two thousand and six, so uh, yeah, we we did reunite, and that was wonderful. And and it meant that he could be in the life of my my nephews and my brother's life and my sister in law. He never met my wife or my kids, unfortunately. 
but um, <clears throat> but I forgot why we brought this up. But but the the you know kind of living living you know with your kids or through adoption or whatever um, is it is fulfilling. And there is this tendency. I don't know how do you react to this with this notion of you know what antinatalism is. No, there's this push that that people shouldn't really have children and that. Uh, you know, mankind is sort of a virus on the surface of the earth. It's causing the destruction of planetary resources. It's causing the depletion of the, you know, of uh, uh, of our habitability zones, of animal life, of plant life, global warming, um, nuclear war threats, all sorts of things. And that we're effectively like a cancer, a toxin on the, on the earth. And that the uh, the moral choice, according to many philosophers and thinkers, quote unquote, now is that you shouldn't have children. And, um, you know, <laughs> it's curious to me if they think, you know, we should commit suicide. And, and there is actually a move towards, you know, assisted suicide and, and encouragement of suicide um, in many other countries, uh, as you may know. So there's this thing, antinatalism means it's a, the philosophy of not having ch- reproduction. And, um, and that, that is considered by many intellectuals to be a net good. Uh, for the planet and for, you know, for, I, I mean, it's so alien to my philosophy that I can't even speak about it because, you know, it's cliche, children are our future or whatever. But, um, but the, you think that the very cure to, to like global warming will be enhanced with more people on earth or, 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 you know, or reduced. <laughs> I mean, it's so obvious that technology depends on the flourishment of the existing Human yeah, civilization. Also, ever since they, I had this conversation with Matt really. Ever since like the early 1800s, every 10 years, people were saying overpopulation is going to kill right. us in the next 10 years, and it never happened. And it, and life has only quality of life around the world on average has only gotten higher in every decade. And That's so right. it's just, it's just ridiculous. Right, it's you, ridiculous you told me that. That uh, I can understand not having children. I did not want to have children. Mm-hmm. Most. Things in my life that I have now, I did not want to have. So mm. it doesn't even matter what you want or don't want; it's going to happen anyway. Yeah. So, like, how can you know? Though there are people that I've interviewed, many, many people on the podcast who chose specifically not to have children, whether it's for lifestyle reasons or look at look at Pressfield, right? I mean, he's basically acknowledged. Maybe it wasn't intentional. Maybe it was that he didn't have children. I I guess I feel like um like I've I've actually. You know, this is where I'm I'm kind of nervous to ask your advice in a certain sense because I feel like that ambition, like I never wrote a book, and then I wrote a book, and then it was with a major publisher with Norton, and then I did um, a self-published book that you you know that you wrote the forward to, think like a Nobel Prize winner, and that was great, and it's it made even more money than the first one. You know what? I didn't get into it for the money. I mean, I probably got paid less than my graduate students. You know, three dollars <laughs> uh, an hour up from the Norton advance. Um, and then I did an audiobook because I thought, oh, that's really cool. It'll be great to have my voice connect. I did it with with Carlo Rovelli and and Frank Wilczek and 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 um, you know these Nobel Prize winners and, and brilliant thinkers. And that was kind of a one. But now I'm like, I don't know if I have that ambition. Any like I've ticked those boxes, and I'm like, where's the next box? And 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 I, I realize that's in total you know contrast and and completely antithetical to what I'm saying before. Which is like you should live to impress yourself. You shouldn't care about these awards and accolades and metric. But like I don't, I don't like those itches have been scratched and so to speak. Like I, I don't feel the need. Maybe that's a good thing. Like I, I think people write books and there's way too many books, right? I, mean, I think there's just people write a book because you know 
whether it's a cookbook because someone told them they're a good cook or, or a memoir because someone said, oh, you had a funny story. Well, there's way too many books. And maybe they could say that about my books. I don't know. Um, I like to think that they help, but uh, it's partially narcissism, right? We, we write books. We like attention. We like book sales. We, we have publicity. We, we do these things. I mean, you, you did it more in the past. You do it less now. But like, is that a warning sign? Like, how do you know when you're <laughs> when you're over the hill, or or when you when? How do you know when your lack of ambition as a fifty-something could be detrimental to some long-term flourishment? I think it's a great question because I don't think there's a real answer. Because first off, a lot of times ambition decreases because of depression. A lot of times mm-hmm. ambition decreases because of less testosterone. Uh, so particularly for men over the age of a certain age, uh, but you know, and, and should you be doing things like, like I wonder for myself, should I be focusing so much for instance on this podcast, as opposed to like starting another business or, uh, you know, writing a, a best-selling book or, or whatever, or, or like for instance, I, I take a lot of my spare time now and I study chess cause I'm trying to. Mm-hmm. Uh, get better at something that I loved so much as a child. And uh, am I wasting my time? Am I ruining my talents? But one thing you can remember, though, is that and it, basically three years after everyone's death, nobody remembers you. And that's true for just about everybody. Like, when that's was the last, last breath. You- yeah, it's the last time you take a breath and the last time that your name is mentioned, right? I, I don't like, know about three years. I mean, you really think it's three years? I mean, if... We go but to my synagogue, and my synagogue temple has a board with people's names that died in the in the in the you know nineteen yeah, so, late nineteen so hundred. Right? When you see that board, so there's yeah. like fifty people. Think about when you see that board. That's right. But, but, yeah. But like, it doesn't matter how many books you wrote. Like, who won the Nobel Prize in nineteen fifty three? Like, we know uh, in nineteen fifty two, I think it was Ernest Hemingway. But in nineteen fifty three, I have no idea who won the Nobel Prize in literature. Probably never read any of their books. Probably this year, nobody has read that person's books. Right. <laughs> uh, and let's just see, 1953 Nobel Prize in Literature. But, you know, again, most, uh, who, you know, President Gerald Ford died, you know, in the past decade or so. He was president of the United States between yeah. Nixon and Carter, like a pivotal right. president that, that took us from Vietnam to, to hopefully a more normal period. It took us from the Nixon, you know, yeah. fraud and potential impeachment to, uh, to you know, the, the nice Jimmy Carter. And, Nobody talks about him ever. Nobody says, yeah. well, this guy is up there on the list of greatest. Pre- He's president of the world. <laughs> and nobody thinks about him ever. And that was a president. Yep. Stay tuned for part two, where we continue our talk. Nobel Prize loser, Brian Keating. Enjoy. Enjoy. 